Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. I gotta go to my next guest, and I cannot tell you how happy I am to have Mayor Bill Wells. He's my mayor of El Cajon, California. I had the privilege of being his pastor for quite a few years. This guy, he, he's a renaissance man. He not only is, is brilliant in the poli-sci or political science and, and governance and is leading our city wonderfully, but he has a, a doctor in psychology. I think he has his master's in nursing, if I'm not mistaken, I believe from Purdue University, some degree in nursing from Purdue University. Yeah, bachelor's, yeah. Oh, the bachelor's is from, okay, from Purdue University. And he's a brilliant musician. I mean, jazz musician, piano, guitar, uh, trumpet. I, I don't know how many instruments he plays. Saxophone, not, not trumpet. But... Oh, so, okay, we're, we're getting close here. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, the fact yeah, but... that he performs, as the mayor of our city, performs major, major shows, musical shows. It's incredible. But what I have him on today is for the issue of homelessness. If he could just be <laughs> the governor of California for a while, or the president of America, or just be dictator for the day, it'd be amazing what he could do to clean up the situation. Now, if you're not in a city that has a lot of homelessness, homelessness, you cannot imagine how horrific it is becoming. San Francisco uh, and, and Los Angeles, parts of Los Angeles, it is just, it's just mushrooming. You probably, many of have seen it, or maybe you live in a city where it's really bad. We've had some of it here in San Diego. It's not been good. And there is one voice that has a clarion call of how to handle this. Mayor, I am so honored to have you on. Take a moment to describe in the first minute or two your biographical sketch. If I miss some things, I want them to know you. And then jump right in and tell us how do we solve the challenge of homelessness. First off, that's the nicest introduction I think I've ever had. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure to be on with all of you. So many uh, faith leaders and prayer warriors. It's, it's really a, an honor to be here. Um, so my background, really, long before I got involved in politics, was in mental health. I started uh, working in psychiatric hospitals in 1988, and I uh, started off with my bachelor's degree in nursing. I worked as a RN for a while, then I went and got my doctorate in psychology. And I've always worked in clinical psychology in the, the hospital side of things. I, I never did any real therapy work. I mostly worked with schizophrenics and people that brought into the hospital, into the emergency room, uh, usually on 72-hour holds and in emergency-type situations, which means that I worked with a lot of homeless people. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first started working with homeless people, and they would come into the hospital, and I would feel really bad for them. It, they would be brought in by the police, um, dirty, filthy, wet, cold, no place to live. And my compassionate side of me just really reached out to them. And, it, and I would get on the phone and I would start making phone calls and I would look for a bed or someplace to, to bring this poor soul after they got out of the hospital. And I'd go back and say, hey, good news. I've uh, secured you a bed somewhere. And they'd say, oh yeah, no thanks. I said, you're kidding. I mean, where are you living? Oh, I'm living under an overpass down on you know 24th street. I said, well, let me get you a bed. Let me get you off the street. And they say, no, I, I, I don't want to. And it it was then that I kind of had a paradigm shift in the way I looked at homelessness. And I realized that homelessness was more often a choice, a choice of lifestyle, than it was something that was thrust upon people by circumstances. Before I go on 
to talk too much more about it. I want to tell you that, that in my opinion, having worked with homelessness closely now for 30 years, um, I think that it's really more of a spiritual issue than it is a socioeconomic issue. And it's really a, a very evil thing. And it, it's an evil thing, not only that we are doing to people by allowing them be, to be homeless, but we're participating in, in their sin and, and letting them live in a way that we would never let our worst enemies live. And we're, we're doing it by saying that it's the compassionate thing to do to let people live this way. And it's like so many things that you see in the left right now, uh, they're saying that it's about one thing when it's really about something else. And they're saying it's about compassion, but it, it could be furthest from the truth. The way that we treat homeless individuals and the way we allow people to live and rot on the side of the roads uh, is the furthest thing from compassion. And I think that there's a more nefarious uh, reason for it. And, and, you know, we could talk about what that is later, but I'm sure you're all pretty smart and you, you've already figured that out. But let's talk a little bit about the rise in homelessness in California. And the reason I picked California is not only it's where I live and where I am the mayor of a moderate-sized city that's just a little bit east of San Diego. Um, California is kind of the epicenter for homelessness in the nation and really in the world. We have by far uh, many more homeless people in California than anywhere else in the country. The only uh, state that comes close to rivaling us is New York, which is interesting because a lot of people will say oh, that the reason there's a lot of homeless people that live in California is because of the good weather. But obviously our second most populous state for homelessness is New York and the weather's not very good in New York. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, the, really the reason that homelessness is so prevalent in California is because the state legislature has gone out of its way to normalize homelessness and to make it easy to be homeless in the state of California. And they've done that through several uh, legislative actions that have been taken that make it difficult for cities to enforce any kind of treatment programs or to enforce any kind of vacancy laws or any of the, the other tools that the cities had at their disposal to try to stem the tide of homelessness. And then they've also made laws in, uh, in regard to uh, criminal justice reform and social justice that made it dif more difficult for people to stay in prisons. And then there's also been a huge change in the way in which we treat um, drug addiction and the, the the criminal penalties for buying and selling and using drugs and anything to do with uh, addiction. So all those three, three things have kind of converged and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about all, the, all of those things. Um, I think it's important to, to start off by saying that if you talk to any emergency room doctor, emergency room nurse, police officer, firefighter, EMT, anybody who's working out there with the, the general population in an emergency situation, they will tell you 99% of the people that are experiencing homelessness, that's the preferred way to talk about it, not being homeless, but experiencing homeless. 99% of these people have addiction issues. Um, when I would have people come into the emergency room, we would do a blood alcohol level and a, uh, a, drug, a drug screen every time and about 99% of the people that were homeless that had these tests done showed up positive for drugs or alcohol or both. And 
the reason that people don't want to get off the street is generally because they are so steeped in their addiction that they'll do anything to stay in that addiction. Now, there's lots of treatment programs, but all these treatment programs pretty much have something in common. And that thing in common is that when you get into a treatment program, you're not allowed to use drugs or alcohol. You've got to uh, give up the use and try to get clean. And nobody wants to do that. I mean, certainly there, there are lots of people that do get off the streets and they, they, they desperately want to get clean and sober. And we've got great programs like the East County Transitional Living Center, which help people do that. But the preponderance of the people that you see on the streets right now are people that have had plenty of opportunities to get off the street, but they don't want to because they want to stay using their drugs and alcohol. The number one drug we see on the streets right now is crystal methamphetamines. But uh, alcohol is also a big problem. Um, to some degree, cocaine, um, to uh, some degree now, fentanyl is a big problem. And of course, marijuana is kind of a, a ubiquitous drug that is being seen throughout almost all strata of homelessness. <clears throat> Our police officers tell me that every person that's on the street right now in my city has been approached about a dozen times and offered an opportunity to get off the streets. And they refuse every single time. So this is something that if you talk about this at a dinner party or you, or you talk about it with your uh, enlightened friends, they may get very upset with you because the homeless industrial complex tells a very different story. In fact, I was looking at some websites before I got on here today about the causes of homelessness and addiction was usually not mentioned at all or at the very bottom. It's almost always uh, said that the the problem is the cost of living, um, the fact that it's difficult to find work, rents are too high, um, all of these socioeconomic kind of issues that cause people to kind of be, it's the down on my luck theory. And it, if you talk to most people um, on the street and, and you, or most people in your, in your general lives and ask them, why are people homeless? I would bet you that a good 70% of them will tell you that um, people are just, you know, it's, it's hard to live in modern America. It's very expensive. You know, you, you lose your job or you have a medical bill or you have something happen where you, you get put back financially. And next thing you know, you're not paying the rent and you can't, you can't pay the uh, utility bills and bing, bang, boom, you're homeless and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's a, it's a horrible thing. And you know what, if that were the case, that would be just an, an awful thing. But that's kind of this fantasy that the left will tell you because it makes it sound so much more palatable than to say that people are drug and alcohol abusers. The main reason they don't want to do that is because there is a stigma associated with being a, a junkie, with being a, a drug and alcohol abuser, and people rightfully will come to the conclusion that you had some hand in your own fate in, in that respect. You know, you, you could stop yourself from being homeless if you were to stop using drugs and alcohol. And the people that are on the left are very, very uncomfortable with that, that dialogue, that narrative. And so they change it and they, they make it sound like the big problem is uh, Trump era economics, which caused people to lose their jobs and, and be unemployed. <clears throat> so that's the number one thing that I want to mentioned off the bet that the big problem is drug and alcohol abuse. <clears throat> now, a phenomenon that's happened in California, which is really hard to understand, unless you're kind of looking at it in the context 
of the left's desire to destroy almost everything involved with the, the social fabric of America right now, to destroy the family and to destroy the, all the norms of traditional American society. The thing that's hard to understand is why would we, why would we pass laws that made it easier to be homeless and more difficult to force people to get help? Because it doesn't make any sense, right? You know, you, you, homelessness is a bad thing. You think that normally a government's role would be to do things that, that would try to help people, that would try to get people off the street. But California has done exactly the opposite. They passed a series of laws that made it much more easy to be homeless. For example, if our police officers stop somebody on the side of the road that has a shopping cart, that was, an, that was something we would normally do. If, if somebody was, had a Target cart or a food basket cart and we, we stopped them and there was full of their belongings, we could, uh, in days past, we could take that shopping cart, say this shopping cart's stolen and it doesn't belong to you. We're taking it back where it belongs. So the ACLU and these other homeless advocacy groups said, no, you can't do that. These shopping carts are full of people's belongings. So if you're going to take a shopping cart from somebody, you have to tag and bag every single item in that shopping cart. That includes a gum wrapper, an old condom, uh, a needle used or not, um, disgusting pieces of filthy clothing, anything you might find in that shopping cart. The police officer has to take that all back to headquarters, lay it all out into a table, tag each one of those items, put it in a, in a, in a bag, bundle all up, put it in the evidence, and we had to keep it and store all those things in evidence for a year. Now, that was done supposedly because we, we didn't want to be stealing people's personal items, and it, it was wrong for the police to be throwing personal items away. But the truth is, they wanted to make it onerous for the police officers to stop people. They wanted to make it difficult. So, and it, and it worked very well. The California state legislature passed that law. So no police officer is ever going to stop anybody for having a stolen shopping cart now. The California legislature also, so one of the big problems with homelessness was that uh, people had to steal to stay homeless. And so they would oftentimes be picked up for shoplifting and put into some kind of a county jail, or if they did enough times into a, a long-term jail facility. And so the California legislature changed the laws that said that if you steal less than $950 in a day, you cannot be arrested for stealing. So what happens is if somebody steals less than $950, our police officers will go and stop them. And I mean, they don't really stop them anymore, but in theory, we could stop them and say, <clears throat> um, give us your driver's license and we'll give you a ticket and you have to show up for court at some point in the future. Of course, everybody who's homeless says, I don't have an ID. The police officer then um, says, what's your name? The person says, John Doe. Police officer writes a ticket to John Doe, leaves it with the, the homeless person. The homeless person then puts it in the trash can and it's over. So that's the beginnings of this uh, shoplifting craze that you've seen in California, it was really to try to make it easier to be homeless and to make it more difficult for municipalities to use that as a tool to get homeless people off the street. Of course, the unintended consequences of that were these ring of thieves that were stealing things from the Rite Aid and from jewelry stores and uh, all over California so that nothing that's not nailed down 
isn't being stolen in California right now. They basically uh, decriminalized theft. But <clears throat> I don't believe that the reason they did that was to decriminalize theft. I think the reason they did that was to make it harder to stop people from being homeless. <clears throat> Another change in law was that we are no longer allowed to arrest people for buying, selling, or using drugs. All we can do is give them a ticket for, for these things, even for fairly large amounts of, of drugs that are caught with, on somebody that they're obviously selling these drugs. And so that's a, a, another way that we're not allowed to, to put people into the, into the criminal justice system. And then lastly, <clears throat> if you don't live in California, you may not know this, but anybody who lives in California certainly knows this. Um, the California legislature has made it very easy to get out of prison. They've made criminal justice reform such that they've closed two full prisons in, in the last two years. And they are letting people out for almost any reason whatsoever, reducing sentences by two thirds. And they're basically uh, allowing all, all crime to be um, uh, legal in California. So in our homeless camps now, we're seeing up to um, two thirds of those homeless people to be prisoners, people that, that were recently in the criminal justice system that have been let out early on, on, on release. Now, a lot of times your mayors or your big cities like uh, San Diego, Sacramento, Los Angeles, they'll, San Francisco, they'll tell you that there's absolutely nothing we can do about this. We have to allow these big homeless encampments. And I don't know, if you're not from California, you may not have seen it, but there, in the big cities, there are dozens of square miles that look like Bangladesh. And, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, tent cities that are the most filthy, crime-ridden uh, cesspools that you could possibly imagine that you would never see in, in a, a, a industrialized country. These are the kind of things that you would only see in the deepest parts of Africa or perhaps India. <clears throat> uh, unfortunately, these are commonplace in our California cities. And our politicians get around this by saying there is a decision made called the Boise decision. And that was a decision made at a, um, <clears throat> a court of appeals that, that said, if a city does not have beds available for people, they cannot tear down a tent. So if you have 300,000 homeless people living in your city and you don't have 300,000 homeless beds available, then by law, you can't tear down any of these tents. Well, I can tell you in my city, I, I routinely ignore, ignore the Boise decision and we do not allow any tents in our city. We do not allow any camping in our city. Um, we do spend quite a bit of money on homeless treatment facilities. And so the way that we get around it legally is by saying we keep a, a, a steady tally of the number of people that we speak with and we offer them treatment. And if they refuse treatment, we, we know how many people are on the street that have refused treatment. And so I think right now we have about 300 people that are on the street in El Cajon that have refused treatment. And we've got about another 1,500 that we've gotten off the streets and in, into various kinds of housing. So the way we do it is we say, <clears throat> because there <clears throat> are 300 people 
in town that have refused treatment and they refuse the housing that we've offered them, we no longer are held by the Boise decision. And so we go ahead and dismantle homeless encampments. Other cities could do this too. In fact, we just had a, a kind of a row with this, the, the uh, county of San Diego over this. And we eventually won and they, they had to dismantle a homeless encampment that was right on our border. But the reality is that these cities, especially ones run by heavily Democrat city councils and mayors, they don't have the political will to do this, even though their constituents are, are disgusted by what's happened to the downtown areas and their people are screaming and begging for relief. It is a sacrament of the Democrat religion right now to allow any kind of homelessness at any time and to never ever do any kind of enforcement. So that's kind of an overview of the situation, at least in California. I think it's um, very similar throughout much of the, uh, of the uh, country. Of course, not to the same high numbers that we see in California. But I thought at this point, I would just open it up to some questions and um, we'll go from there. Uh, this is really a thorough overview, uh, exactly what I expected of you. You never disappoint. I, I just want the issue of mental health. You've been involved in the mental health profession for a very long time. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> um, give me just a quick overview. There was a time when somebody was mentally ill, there was a place to take them. And we had mental hospitals. That was much more common. My sister at one point, who's on this call, was a psychiatric nurse at one point. There was a phrase that we used when I was a child, we don't use it anymore, insane asylums. Now that, that's obviously a phrase that's not even used in culture today, but, but tell me what unfolded in terms of mental illness that caused us to have effectively no institutions anymore or no one who is mentally ill and can do harm to themselves and others gets locked up anymore. Well, there was a perfect storm that happened in the, in the early 70s. Um, it, it started really with um, President Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy, who took his daughter in for um, a um, lobotomy without telling his mother and thinking that it would make, the, make her better. She had uh, Down syndrome, I believe. And instead, it made it much, much, much worse. And so the, the whole country became aware of this idea that people were being taken in against their will without, any, without even their mother being aware of it and being lobotomized in a psychiatric hospital. It scared everybody to death. And then right after that, the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out. And of course, that movie showed <clears throat> the abuses of psychiatric hospitals at the time. And that scared everybody as well. And so they're kind of like the, the Me Too movement and, and the gay rights movement that you've seen and some of these other movements where people got very, very worked up about this cause. And so in the early 70s, people were very worked up about the cause of uh, forced uh, treatment in a, in a psychiatric hospital. Now, at the same time, some researchers came out with a new medication called Thorazine and some uh, professors from Harvard came out and said, with Thorazine, we don't have to worry about schizophrenia anymore. It's going to cure this. We, we, we no longer have these problems with these psychotic disorders. And of course, they took this, all these things came to the, to the legislatures. And in California's case, uh, California said, wow, we could save billions of dollars by closing all these psychiatric hospitals. The public wants this. The scientific community tells us 
we no longer have to worry about it anymore because they're, everybody's going to be cured of schizophrenia. And uh, they're going to do these things called board and cares, which are these little homes in communities where if people have a setback and they need to get a little tune up in between um, being out on their own, if they need to come in for a while, they can go in the hospital for a while and then, then recover at a board and care and everything's going to be great. So that set off two things. One is they closed all the long-term psychiatric hospitals, the state hospitals, and then they also changed the laws about involuntary commitment. And they made the, the laws for involuntary commitment incredibly stringent, very, very difficult to force people into a hospital for a very long period of time. We can put somebody on a 72-hour hold in California. Um, if they're a danger to themselves, their other or grave disability, meaning they, they're unable to care for themselves. But getting much past 72 hours is almost impossible. Um, you, you have to go for conservatorship after that. That means a, a psychiatrist has to certify that somebody is so psychotic they can't care for themselves. They have to go before a judge. That judge then has to uh, agree with the psychiatrist. That person gets a public defender. The public defender does anything they possibly can to get somebody out of this. And frankly, it's so expensive and time consuming. Most psychiatrists don't want to get anywhere near it because it means they have to give up their practice for a whole day and go sit in court. And so basically the, the whole system is doomed to failure and it's almost impossible to put somebody on conservatorship. So we've got a situation now in California, at least, where family members would call me and they still call me all the time and say, how can I possibly get my daughter, my son, my husband, my uncle into a psychiatric hospital? He's you know, completely psychotic. He's living in filth. He's threatening to kill himself. He's trying to kill other people. He's uh, knocking out all the windows and lighting fires in the room. And, and we will send the police out and try to put them on a hold. And then generally, if the, if the patient can kind of pull it together for a, a, a few minutes and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm better now, officer. I'm going to take my meds. I'm not going to hurt anybody anymore. They'll have to let him go. And the whole thing starts all over again. So you're right, um, Pastor. If, if we're going to fix this problem, we're going to have to revitalize those or relook at all those laws and make it much more uh, accessible to the public to get their loved ones off the streets. And it doesn't, it shouldn't just be for psychiatric problems. Also be, it should be this kind of recalcitrant drug activity where people are living in filth on the streets and it, it, refusing to get any kind of treatment. If we, if we could, could revise those laws and then build a significant number of state psychiatric hospitals, we'd have a fighting chance of, of helping this problem. But without those two things, I don't see any way to, to solve the issue. Certainly not by throwing money at it. One thing is I respect about you is you're biblically grounded. You know, the word of God deposited on your heart. So based upon that, as a follower of Jesus, let's suppose we had the entire state legislature comprised of people like Bill Wells, and you are now governor. So you have, you have some political clout in the state or in any state that they're dealing with this. Walk me through what, what would you do if you had the political clout to be able to exercise this kind of authority? Well, I think the first thing I would do is try to get consensus that leaving people to live in filth on the streets, involved in sex trafficking and being raped constantly is not a compassionate thing to do. That the compassionate thing to do sometimes is the harder thing to do and get people treatment, even if they don't want treatment. And if we all could agree on that, then I would, I would brace the public for the fact that this is going to be a very expensive proposition 
We're going to have to rebuild psychiatric hospitals all throughout the state. We're going to have to put in enough housing so that people that are having their minds completely fried on methamphetamines, and so, many of them will never come back, not to mention schizophrenia and all the other psychiatric problems. We're going to have to provide housing for these people once they get off the streets and they get off drugs. Some of them will get better and some of them will go back out of productive lives and some of them won't. And so as a society, we're going to have to make a decision that we're willing to spend the money to do this. And then we're going to have to revamp the laws and make it possible to force people into treatment against their will. Now, I don't like the idea of one person being able to decide that somebody should be stuck in a psychiatric hospital for a long period of time. There's all kinds of, I mean, I can tell you my years working in the, in the hospital, I had countless people try to get their wives or their or their sons or their daughters put into psychiatric hospitals for nefarious reasons. People, people have all kinds of horrible reasons for wanting to try to get somebody out of the way by putting, sticking them in a psychiatric hospital. So we have to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. But you could do that by having panels of experts that had to decide cases and not just leave it to one person. But it would take that kind of, you know, almost like a World War II effort to solve this problem. It, it's not going to be solved by building some apartments in the downtown area and giving people the keys. It's not gonna be solved by giving them a stipend every month. These, there's no quick fixes to this. So we would have to have a lot of political will. Do you, uh, you move among mayors of your city. What's the population of El Cajon? 100,000. So 100,000, that's, that's, that's a sizable city. And you're in the midst of, uh, you're a suburb effectively. So you're, you're in the midst of about three, what, three and a half million population? Yes. And as you talk with other uh, governors, as other mayors, correct, are, are, do you find other mayors who understand the issue as you do? Very few. And I, and I think the reason being is because they don't want to understand the issue. I, I think that politics is so grounded in almost a, a religious fervor these days, especially amongst the left. Um, they're not going to give up these talking points no matter what. Uh, and the, the, this is, again, the concept that this is all capitalism's fault. This is because it's impossible to pay rent in California. It's impossible to get a job in California. It's impossible to get ahead for a working man in California. And they're not going to give that up because it's not politically expedient to do so. And also because I think that there's a, a real desire to kind of champion these more social, sinful type concepts like drug addiction. Nobody on the left seems very interested in solving drug addiction. They seem to kind of champion it and they seem to kind of celebrate it. So for those reasons, and for the fact that most of my contemporaries in California are on the left, um, I'm a, my ideas and my thoughts are more of the pariah. Now you, uh, and you're probably the only mayor that has 30 plus years in the mental health profession of, of experience, strong personal hands-on experience. Am probably. I correct on that? So far, I haven't met anybody yet. Yeah. If you go to, to states that are led by, say, Governor Abbott, Governor DeSantis, is there, do you see any encouraging sign in states like that that have led in a number of ways? Uh, do you see any of the states that, are, that grasp what you have laid out in such a way that, that there's some movement, some direction 
uh, in this under state legislators or among governors of this type? Um, I think there's certainly more than California, but I think it's all in its infancy. I think uh, it's really a hard, hard thing for people to get excited about because historically uh, psychiatric patients and homeless people are, are, it's a constituency without any power. Uh, it's, it's constituency that can't raise money, that, do, that doesn't vote. And so as long as they were kind of under the radar, I think that people were happy to not worry about it too much and not bring it to the, to the forefront. Now, certainly homelessness is becoming more of a national issue. And so I think that uh, places like Florida with Governor DeSantis, I think, I think he gets it and he's, he's trying to move in the right direction. I wish I could say so the case in Texas. I um, actually began my career in Texas and I didn't see it significantly better in Texas than I do in California. So um, it, you know, I think it's, it's going to take, um, it's going to take a, a, a lot of education and a lot of rethinking of the way we deal with this problem. And it's going to take a lot of money. Probably, if we're really going to get serious about it, there's got to be some federal infusion of money. The, uh, one of the reasons why what you're saying is unpopular <clears throat> among certain individuals in the political structure is because they thrive on a theology of victimhood. As long as they can keep talking about you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim, you can't do anything because you're a victim, uh, then, then, then there's, there's no will to try to help people overcome and be able to put in the rear view mirror that which is destroying them. Any comment on that? Just that you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, and again, that's I sent you an article that I wrote that I thought people would be excited to hear from because I was not only the mayor, but a doctor um, that worked in mental health and worked with this kind of people. I thought people would be really excited to hear what I had to say. I couldn't have been more wrong. They were so angry. Just, I got hate mail from every continent on the face of the earth. And the reason being was because people are really invested in this victimology. And, you know, I just got a lot of angry. How can you, how dare you blame the victim? You know, it's why it's none of their fault. This is all society's fault. This is, they've done this to these poor people, not that they've done this themselves. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a prevalent part of our, our national or probably world society right now. And it's kind of hard to fathom. Did you use the, a phrase a little bit ago? I didn't write it down. A phrase, homelessness industrial complex or, or something like that? I think I might have coined that myself, the homeless industrial complex. Just there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations that are making massive amounts of money um, yes. perpetuating homelessness. Um, they have no interest in solving the problem. They have no interest in really doing the kind of things that might really help. They have a lot of interest in spreading money around and keeping a lot of it for themselves. You know, everybody's getting a three or $400,000 a year salary running these nonprofits. And um, I'm super frustrated with that ilk of person that is feeding off the, the suffering, the human misery of people, and uh, I, I, I'm I'm really angry and frustrated with those kind of people. So yeah, I I use that derogatory term. Well, and thank you for you have a holy anger, a righteous anger, and well, it should be. I, I cannot tell you how much you have meant to me, my family, personally. You've blessed us, <clears throat> but then to see your leadership and just watch the way you've developed, I I dare say 
<clears throat> that there is probably not a mayor in the nation who can articulate as clearly what you have outlined. And, and I wanna to say to the, those listening, some of you are influencers on here and let's get the name Bill Wells out there. Uh, let's get him speaking in churches. Let me, if, I don't know if his schedule permits this. I didn't ask his permission to say this, but if he can fly to various places where you are and speak and let's beat this drum. Because if we do not, there's gonna be millions of more people harmed, hurt and wounded and dead on our streets. If we do not get this addressed, he said, he, he, he made a statement. It looks like Bangladesh. Um, frankly, it doesn't even look that good. It's horrific. And so uh, I'll be glad to supply the information. I don't know if you want to give any contact information. You're welcome to it. If you, if you don't want to, yeah. you, you give out, you've got all my contact information. Anybody who wants it, I don't even have to ask permission. My, you can give my cell phone or my email or any, anything. I'm happy to talk to anybody. Okay. We, we'll, we'll put some contact out. I don't want to give your cell phone out, but we'll, we'll certainly. Uh, I don't mind. Okay. Okay. Very good. Fair enough. Uh, we want to pray over you. Uh, we're going to have a song by, by Alma right now. Alma, I want you to lead us in worship because this is, this, this, this is demonic what we're facing. This is, he said at the outset, this is spiritual. Yeah. Uh, the, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And when you drive by an encampment like that, those are people being killed, destroyed. Uh, they're obviously stealing. Uh, and and we, we need to see a supernatural touch. What do you want to it's say? It's a type of torture and a type of human sacrifice because the blood of innocent babies feeds the altars of these demons, but so does the destroyed lives of men and women and the continual suffering and torture as their life stretch out, stretches out till they have nothing, not even their own breath. Um, I want you to lead in worship. And then uh, Deborah and Marsha, would you come on and lead in prayer? And you know how to pray, but pray for this mayor and let's get his name out there. Uh, there there's, there's, there's many hundreds of you on this very social media and then there's thousands that are gonna see this uh, in the next day or two in the archives and then numbers of thousands that's gonna go to in a newsletter. And let's get his name out there and get him speaking everywhere we can and see if we can turn the tide create a movement uh, to, to address this. So thank you, Mayor Wells. Uh, if you have time, I know you may be pressed for time, but if you have time to stick around, they're going to be praying for you after this worship song. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Thank you for listening to the Well-Versed Podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.